0: Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. The big question that sits around all of us in our culture and our world is, Why in the world is God allowing so many bad things to happen? Big question. Why is there so much bad in the world? Why is there so much bad in my life? We use the word evil. We use the word bad. We use the word terrible. We can use all these words. Why are all these things happening all the time? If God is all-powerful, God is all-loving, God is all-knowing, why is this happening to us? And usually we ask that question out of our own Experiences, right? Our own experiences, how we're feeling, what we've been through, what our friends have been through, what family have been through, what our state has been through, what our country has been through. We look at this and say, God, look at the entire world. I mean, this is just insanity now of how much evil and darkness. Why aren't you doing anything about it? If it were me, if you've heard me preach before, I love the word smite. I would smite all of you smite 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 i grew up like with this fear of god like always ready to push the button to blow me up i don't know why it's just my own fear like he's always like mad at me and like i just felt like when i did these bad things like i'm the bad one and i had this guilt and this shame but then when i take this guilt and shame and i take this smite 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 mentality and i look at the world i'm like there'd be nobody left so god what in the world are you doing What's happening? But let's talk real specifically about what's happening right now because you ask any generation, the generation is going to say, the ones that come before us are going to say, this next generation is the worst one ever. So the baby boomers looked at, they skipped over Gen X because we're the best generation. They looked right to millennials and they said, that's the worst generation ever. We look to Generation X now or to Z and we say, Generation Z, look at, they have no moral compass. Look at this next generation. They have no direction. We have all these things. We look at it. It looks like we're continually getting worse and worse. But I want to give you a perspective as we dig into a thought and a passage today. That culturally, the United States of America was built on a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview. A biblical worldview means this. Is that I view the world and culture through the lens of the Bible. Okay? So the United States of America. Now I'm not saying our founding fathers were good men or didn't make mistakes. That's not the, what my point is. The point of this is this that it was a foundation that was built into a culture in which culture says we at least try to adhere to what the Bible says as our moral code or standard of what is correct or incorrect. Over the course of time, that's been eroding. And we're moving into a time now in which a biblical worldview is one of the least popular views. And as we look at an American culture, we're just talking about America right now, an American culture in which a biblical worldview is now rejected, we start to say, where is God in the midst of all this? Why is everything getting worse? And I think the answer is right here for us this morning. Things are getting worse because we've accepted a form of belief system that is not biblically based, therefore leading to a cascading issue of sin, and we'll use the word bad, which is cascading into generations and it's being passed on to the next generation to the next. So instead of the generation who comes, who's being handed this new way of thinking, saying, no, we reject this and follow God, as we will find out all humans throughout history say, ooh, we're going to take more of this sin life because that makes us happier. So it should not surprise us. Don't ever be surprised when evil acts like evil because it has since the very beginning. Evil does what evil is. It should not surprise us. The only thing that's going to save us now is an absolute repentance and turn back to God. That's the only thing that's going to save us. It has to be repentance. We have to stop believing all of this and take a shift to say maybe God is smarter than we are. And this book and these stories, which he wrote thousands upon thousands of years ago, that maybe it's right a little bit. I mean, just a little bit. Currently, I saw a statistic that just blew my mind. 36% of American preachers, teachers, pastors, 36% hold a biblical worldview. 36% hold a biblical worldview, which means they hold to the entirety of Scripture. What's happening now, even among the leaders, is that we're starting to accept and reject pieces that we like and pieces that we don't like, and the biblical worldview is being eroded away because evil does what evil is. It shouldn't surprise us. What should surprise us is that the followers of Jesus Christ are accepting this and saying, it's okay, I'm, not, I'm okay with that. Now, as we get into this passage, I want to frame this for you. The purpose of this passage is to not point outside the walls of the church and say, look at how terrible that they are. Because Christians have done that for decades, and we're part of this mess is because of that. We want to change the moral structure of a world. But remember, they don't hold the moral values of what the Bible says. Those who call on Christ as Savior, we have a different template. And so we have to look internally to ask the question are we adopting into a lifestyle and a belief system that is not scriptural? Are we starting to adopt and become like everybody else around us? And are we starting to waver? And are we starting to become those people who don't really hold a biblical worldview? Because if you don't hold a biblical worldview, I just want you to hear this now. I love philosophy and I'm a nerd sometimes. If you don't hold to something, your entire faith structure crumbles. A biblical worldview or a belief in a system that says God's standards for us, I take it through his standards, not my expressions of emotions, not through my experiences, through his word, I now have a basis which to stand. And what we're finding is that when we take what's happening now, which is an individualistic morality, which means this, individualistic morality believes that what my experience is and what my feelings are are true for me, and now my individual self is going to determine what is right and what is wrong. And my system is okay for me, and you can't butt up against that nor tell me there's a different system. Sounds great. Except there's a problem with this, and I'll uh, change that a million problems with this, but here's the major problem, is that my individualistic belief system is okay until I butt up against your belief system and now I'm labeled. Because I can't have my own belief system, I have to agree and believe in your belief system, which means we have this big, huge sea of chaos. So what is morally correct is now getting washed out. That's really, really hard. But we have to look not at the world because if we look at Genesis, the world's going to do what the world's going to do. It's what they do. That's normal, but the people of God are called to be different. So this message today, as we start to process this, look at what you believe. Look at your moral system. Look at what you believe about the word of God because God's theme through Genesis so far has been the same. God is just and will judge sin, but he's also merciful. God is just and will judge sin, but he is also merciful. These two things come together in only a way that God could do it. Because remember, I would just smite you. I would just judge you and smite, smite, smite. I have no patience. God's patience is so amazing with a people group that continually reject them over and over and over again. So today we're going to dig into uh, an account uh, we're going to look at someone named Lot. We would talk last week about Abram and the, we're talking through what's been going on in Genesis. We also, at the beginning, we had sin, we had the fall, we had the flood, we had all these things happen. Uh, we had this promise to Abram, and now we're bringing in this person, Lot. Now, Lot is a nephew of Abram. Uh, when Abram left and God said, I have a land, I want you to leave your home country and go to a land I have for you called Cain, and I want you to go, he took his family and his nephew, Lot. And so in Genesis 13, 14, we start to see that time has passed, they've been traveling together, things are okay, but they are growing super rich in terms of their herds and all of these possessions that they have. And so they said, you know, it's best for us to separate, to remain allies. And so Abram says to Lot, he says, okay, what direction do you want to go? And Abram uh, gives this opportunity to Lot. Lot says, okay, I'm going to go that way because that way is super fertile. I want to be in that farming land. He says, okay, great, so Lot chooses his options, he goes to the east, Abram continues, and now Abraham continues on his way. So he goes from being a farmer to a person who's now working in the city called Sodom. And this city, and we're going to find about, is a place that is becoming corrupt. And so as we look at this city, we go back to our story of God and Noah and the flood when this immense group of people are just riddled with sin because sin just keeps continuing to grow until something stops it. Sin continues to grow until something stops it. It's very important that you understand that because that's going to answer the questions of what God is doing in this story. It continues to multiply until God does something about it. So in Genesis 18, we see this dialogue between Abram and God, and he says this, The Lord says, you know, I just, I can't stand this city. It is just so bad. It needs to be judged, right? So this city needs to be destroyed. Now, back to where we were in the past, when people are full of sin, the the right outcome or the justification or being judged on that, uh, there's no justification being judged, excuse me. The judgment is death. And so this city, the answer for their sin is death. The answer for you and I in our sin is death. So he's looking at this city and he's like, There's only way to fix this, again, is I have to eradicate a city. People can be afraid of reading into Genesis because it seems like God is being mean and vindictive, but it's actually quite the opposite. God is patient, and he is willing to listen and have mercy and love, but he does not put up with sin. It is not something you play with. It's not a toy. It is not a game. It is very, very serious, okay, okay? So, in this verse, now he has this conversation in verse 20. It says this The Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So, God's going to send a messenger into the city to say, Okay, this place is just wicked. Now, of course, he knows, but he's having a dialogue. There's a narrative here happening. With Abram. And Abram responds with this in verse 23. Abram approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there's 50 righteous people in the city? Will you sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will you not judge of all the earth to do right? And so here this dialogue, Abram's like, Look, man, if there's just like 50 people that are good in this city, you're going to tell me you're going to wipe out all the good people with the bad people at the same time? These righteous, the ones who follow you, the ones who love you, the ones who call you their savior, their master, their lord, their king, you're going to wipe everybody out in one fell swoop because this huge city is bad? What about the people who there who love you? And so an interesting dialogue goes between both Abram and God, and he starts to do this poetic a discussion in which God and Abram are having this very interesting conversation. Now, remember, this is a narrative of, of thinking and a process in which Abram is working with God to see, okay, where are you in this? So he asked the question, what about if there's 45? And God says, okay, I won't do it. He says, whoa, what about 40? It kind of sounds like a two-year-old trying to get a free cookie or something, right? <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. What about 30, God? Would you destroy the city if you find 30? He's like, no. What about 20, God? Now, what if you find 20 people that love you? Would you destroy the city? And he says, no. Okay, what about 10? What if there's 10 individuals in this entire organization and all of these people in all this area? You're telling me, 10 people, God, would you save the city? He says, sure. Sure. He's like, oh, I, can you imagine if you won that debate? Like, okay, do I ask for five? I don't know. Like, how far do I go with this, right? Because Abram knows that his nephew Lot lives there. Lot lives in Sodom. And so this discussion that's happening, he's thinking not only of these people and God's righteousness and his holiness. He's like, wait, there are righteous people there. There are good people. Lot lives there. His family lives there. His daughters live there. His wife lives there. Their fiancés, we find out, live there. Like, God, you got to spare them at least 10, right? Because then you would save the city and not destroy it. So, God agrees. God shows his mercy on this city that is so wicked and dark. For God to say, I'm going to wipe out an entire city, there's, there's some darkness going on there. And so, when he says, Okay, I will have mercy. That doesn't make sense to me because I'm the smite guy, right? So mercy is this time in which you're not getting what you deserve. They all deserved to be wiped out. And Abram has this conversation, what about these people? Now these people, the righteous, they're still sinful too. And we're going to find out that they're just as messed up as everybody else. But he says, okay, I will allow this to happen. And where our logic can have a hard time putting this all together is that what we want, what we deserve, when it's good for us, we think we should always get, when we deserve something that's not good or something we don't like, we think it's mean to be handed out to us. So when evil ruins people's lives, when you do something knowledgeably sinful, okay? I don't need to get into examples. Knowledgeably sinful. And there's an outcome that doesn't go the way you want. And then you say, why would God let this happen to me? You just got to scratch your head a little bit and say, I don't think you really understand God. Because that's not how this works. Sin has repercussions and it causes unbelievable destruction both in your life and the lives of others. And we learn even in scriptures from generations that there is destruction. And so when God is saying, man, you know what, I'm going to show mercy, it doesn't necessarily make sense because this city deserved to get wiped out. But he says, okay, that sets us up now for Genesis chapter 19. If you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, uh, feel free to open to Genesis chapter 19. It's 1 to 29. It's a long passage. And I'm not going to put it on the screen behind me, which is pretty common right now because we're doing such large uh, passages in this Series, but I want you to read along. And if you've not been reading the Bible through this, I want you to read Genesis. Because I could be up here saying anything. Unicorns are real, right? I could say anything. You need to read the Word of God for yourself and know the Word for yourself because that's how you build a biblical worldview, understanding and knowing the true character of God. I'm here to guide you on that, but I want you to read for yourself if you can. So we're in verse, uh, we're going to start here in 19, verse 1. This is the story of now God has sent his messengers. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. "My lords," he said, "please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning." "No," they answered. <laughs> "No. <laughs> no. We will spend the night in the square." But he insisted so strongly that they go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and all, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you so you can, do with the, you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Yeah, I need some parental classes. <laughs> Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, Hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But the sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grabbed his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives and don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, there's a town near enough to run to. It is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. But flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land, and the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all the living in the city and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord, He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Lot going on here. Let's break it down. So God sends these two messengers, these two angels come in, and their job and their purpose is to walk into the city and find ten people. 10 people that would be considered righteous. That's, that's their job. So they walk into the city and they stopped at the gate because Lot's at the gate. Now, Lot is at the gate because he is a person of authority in the city of Sodom. He is a authority, a judge, or had to do something with exchanges. He had a position because that gate area was one in which these people would be positioned. So when he sees at the gate, he's not like sitting on the ground just like sitting there. He's actually a person of prominence in the city. So, How did he get to that place from a farmer who followed God to now a city in the city that is this wicked and a prominent place? We don't know, but we can take some guesses. Regardless, he comes out of here and he sees these two men coming and he says, Hey, you guys, you are not from here. You need to stay with me. And they're like, No, we're good. We'll go stay in the square which would be commonplace for people who are traveling. To stay in the square meant they would be most likely murdered in this city. And Lot knew this, that this was a dangerous place for anybody outside here. And he urges them, no, 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 you don't understand this place. You need to come with me. Imagine getting dropped into a very dangerous, very part of the world. You're just dropped in the middle and you're going to sleep outside and just like hope you make it, right? Like this is not a good situation for these two strangers and Lot knows that. So Lot says, no, no, come to my house. I I will take care of you. You can stay here and then you guys can go. So they go to the house and they have this great meal together. They're eating together. And then the men of the city hear what's happening. What's really fascinating about this is very intentional in the author to note that it wasn't a certain group. It wasn't like all the 20-year-olds in the city heard about this because they posted on Instagram. It wasn't like that. This was something in which the word is spreading and that all ages, all demographics, um, every economical status, both the rich and the poor, that this town says all men of this city start coming forward in this to this dude's house. So there's a recognition of Lot with some of these people. Again, he's a person of prominence in the area, which was part of why they responded the way they did. So they know him, and they're like, hey, you've got some people in there. Bring them out here now. Now, this passage has been used over and over again about the concept of homosexuality. That's not the purpose of this passage, and it's not contextually correct. We need to look at this contextually and do proper exegesis, which means pulling out the word to understand what is the author saying to us. Because we can fixate on one thing. That's not the purpose of showing what was happening. The purpose of the passage is showing you the mass corruption that whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, that these men have come to rape and kill two other human beings. They're coming to destroy these humans. And so what is just mind-blowing is that the city is so immensely corrupt that everybody is in on it. And so the purpose is to show you there aren't ten people. There aren't 10 people. That the actual Sodom and Gomorrah is so corrupt and so wicked and their minds is so moved and all these things have happened that the purpose of this is to show there are not 10 people in this area. And guess what? Lot is one of them. Because his answer is like, hey, I've got a better option for you. They're under my protection. Take my virgin daughters and do with them what you will. What in the world was Lot? thinking. Why would they add this passage to it? You start reading these things, you're like, oh my word, this is really in the Bible? Yes, it is. There's some really messed up stuff. And this is why it's messed up. In the Bible, our word, our heroes are always, almost always, except for Jesus himself, shown as absolute failures. And here the the hero of this story is supposed to be Lot. Before it was Abram, but Abram didn't trust in God's promise. Now we have Lot and he was supposed to be one of the good guys in this city and he's like, no, 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 here, uh, just take my daughters. So theologians start to put this all together and theologians start to work through this passage and say, what is this showing us in terms of Lot's mentality? And this is the mentality that we can find. The way of Yahweh or God has been replaced for the way of Sodom. That he, would, he wants to take his daughters out to be raped and killed. There's some cultural aspect that's happening that Lot isn't even thinking of the way of Yahweh. He's thinking completely like Sodom and Gomorrah. And the corruption of what it has been for him to be in that culture has changed him so much from the time he left Abram's side. So now you see this mass shift and Abram has been praying and asking God for 10. Maybe Lot's in that Lot is messed up. That he would offer his daughters. And these men are like, absolutely not. Give us what we want. It should not surprise you in a culture when culture acts sinfully. That should not shock us. Because sin does what sin is. It shouldn't shock us to see this sort of just robust, sinful, evil act that's happening throughout an entire culture because that's what happens when you don't follow God. The time that we see this, we go back to the flood and it's described the same way during the flood of Noah. But God had promised, I'm not going to flood the earth again. So now this area is so corrupt, he says there's only one answer for me to do is destroy it because there aren't even 10 people. In fact, you know what, Lot, you aren't even worth it because you are unrighteous, but God has mercy. The mercy of God is what this whole passage is about. Because it scares us when we read the New Testament. We're like, God loves me, Jesus loves me, Jesus died for me. Correct? But God also hates sin because it costs His life of his son, and he's also a righteous judge. Those two, there's not two different gods. It is one God from Genesis to Revelation. And what he is showing us is how merciful and why we call out and cry to Jesus that he saved us, because this is what we all deserve. And even if we're the hero of the story, let's put ourselves... You're messed up too. You're totally messed up. You're sin filled, you're making mistakes, and you love Jesus. So, if God Himself sent two angels and said, Go into Slinger, or let's say Washington County, we'll broaden the span here a little bit. Go into Washington County and find me 10 righteous, would you be plucked out of the crowd? Terrifying thought. Like, can I, do, I, do I look like my culture? Am I like everybody else? Have I adopted what's popular or have I adopted what the word of God says? Am I fixated on some things that are not of the word and trying to focus all my energy on changing things or maybe changing my culture instead of adopting the word of God in my own heart, changing my heart and then be a disciple that makes disciples and make disciples. You heard about it this morning and why we are so passionate about small groups and our discipleship Uh, pathway that we do is because the world needs people who loves Jesus in the middle of the world. We need to put ourselves where people aren't going to church, where people aren't seeking God, and show them the way of God. Because the world gets darker, we can either sit in our little church and cry about it and be mad, or we can actually do what Jesus told us to do, go make disciples. In my opinion, I started a church to go make disciples, so I'm all in on this idea. I live it, I believe it, I'm transformed by it. Because as the world gets darker and darker and darker, may the Lord look at Mosaic and say, no, i got more than 10 righteous. I've got 200 righteous people right there, right across the street from the high school, right there, Slinger Road. I know where they are, 206, good people. I like my boy Jay. Yes, they're good. Go there, but... That's not what's happening in this culture. We flash back into what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's getting darker and darker and darker. And Lot is seen as dark, and then he would send his own daughters out. And then these angels strike the whole crowd blind so that they can't find a door. I wish we could see what that looked like. You know, it was a, you know like they're just running around, like bumping into each other, like, get the door. Like, I can't find the door. And so we don't know how many people are there. It's all the men. Hundreds? Thousands? We don't know. But it's just a mass chaos of, I can't see. Everyone's all, I can't see, I can't see. And they, they have no idea what's going on. And so they said, we got to get out of here now. Right now, grab your family. Grab your son-in-laws. Grab everybody. Son-in-laws, let's go. He's like, nah, man, I don't believe you. Was he a jokester or something? Like, that's funny. Like, hey, come leave. The city's going to be destroyed. Nah, you're kidding, Lot. Like, that's not a joke that you joke about. But the son-in-laws, the ones betrothed to the daughters he was just ready to have go get killed, mind you, uh, they didn't believe him either. So Lot now hesitates and like, "Ah, I don't want to go. Can you imagine that? Why are you hesitating when this whole place is about to be destroyed? Did he not believe the angels? Was he maybe like, "Ah, I don't know, man, I got a lot going on here. I got a lot of. I'm kind of rich here. I'm a man of power. I'm kind of important. Like I don't want to leave this place. This is my home. I love this place. I know these people. Like, yeah, it was a little weird last night with the guys on the door and the daughter. Like, I guess it's a little weird, but hey, I know a couple of those guys. Normally they're pretty good guys. I don't necessarily want to go. Boy, can we relate when it comes to sin in your life, right? I know I shouldn't be doing that. It's really not a good idea. I learned about that when I was a kid. I heard about that somewhere. I just don't really want to let that go. Because you don't understand my story, my situation, Jason, in which, you know, I I just need something to help me feel better. And this is just something that gives me what I need at that time. And you don't understand. I just don't want to let that go. And so we sit in sin. We continue a pattern of sin. And then we ask God why things are terrible. I mean, Look at how messed up we are as humans. Look at what sin is doing to us. So now the angels grab their hands and start pulling them out of the city, which is just fascinating in this passage. He knows this whole place is getting blown up, and he's hesitating, I don't know. They grab their hands and they start pulling them out. And now there's this passage about, go to the mountains. He's like, I, don't, I can't make it to the mountains. We don't know if that's because he was old and didn't think you could get there physically, if it was too far of a trek for him, if he couldn't get there with all of his stuff. I've got to get all my stuff in a caravan, right? i get all my, got all the sheep and cattle. And i got all this, all this money. i got to get this all. We don't know. But for whatever reason, he's like, I can't make it that far. Give me this small town. It's a small little town, which means it can't be that sinful. It can't be that much sin. It's only like 20 people that live there. So let me go there. And so they say, fine, you can go there. And so they drag them out of the city. They go. And on this pilgrimage, as they're running, he says, you need to run and do not look back. Run and do not look back. Do not look back to your past. Don't long for what's about to happen. Don't say, Oh, my house is burning. You need to run. You need to run and get out of this. This is the judgment and wrath of God coming down. This is what it looks like. It is not pretty. It is terrifying. But you have been spared because God just is merciful. I I just want to spare you. I'm just gonna, I'm just sparing you. Even though they should have been in there with them. So they have one thing. We hear this a lot in the story of Genesis. One thing, don't look back. In the Garden of Eden, you have one thing. Don't eat of this tree. They eat of the tree. One thing, don't look back. Lot's wife looks back. So she looks back. And what's really interesting is the Hebrew word for look back. It's not what we think. It's not like a glance over your shoulder like, oh, like I want to see what's happening. The Hebrew word uh, translates into this. To regard, to consider, or to pay attention to. So when she looked back, we're going to say she stopped Looked back and like uh, seeing everything go down. But my friends are there. Everything's there. And then we start to think. I wonder if she has relationships in there with other men. I wonder if she has all her money. Like what's drawing her back into that place? There's loss that is happening as Sodom starts to burn and God is bringing wrath. She feels great, huge, tremendous loss of what's happening in that city. She left things behind that she wanted, that she desired. We don't know what they are, but something makes her stop and say, I want that. I don't want to leave here. I want to go back. And she's turned into a pillar of salt. It's an interesting concept. And again, theologians, these are a lot of, we, there's a lot of work and thought. There's lots of thoughts. I try to give you a very broad-based thought. There's lots of thoughts. Did she, poof, become a Morton's pillar of salt? Poof, did she turn into rock salt? The other thought is that as she was looking back, she actually delayed and stopped. And as God's wrath came through and went over the land, notice it took the plains out as well, that this, as this came through, this sulfuric, we'll think acid rain would be kind of a thought that we can try to conceptualize a little bit comes through here, she is caught in the wrath of God. Because if they says, run and don't look back, that means you need to roll, bro, and don't stop. And so as this comes through, the wrath of God came on her because she didn't obey. And so she was swept into what was happening to the city as well, as a member of the city. Lots of thoughts. Regardless, it wasn't a good outcome for her because she desired the past and she wanted that man this is quite a crazy story because when we hear this and we hear that Lot comes out he gets out of it and Abram at the end looks over and just see the smoking pile of rubble everything is gone and destroyed it can start to put that fear of the smiting in us start to say well wait god go That scares me a little bit. It scares me to think that you would do that to people that you say you love. If you love us, why would you do this to us? If you love humanity so much that you sent Jesus Christ to die for us, why is this happening to us? And here's what we have to process this morning. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took the wrath of Sodom on you, for you, on him. So he was your replacement. When God flooded the earth, and everyone was wiped out, Jesus Christ took that punishment on himself that you deserve. Everything that we deserve, Christ took. And so this isn't some religious, I want to be a good person thing. This is an actual transformation in which the God of the universe has taken what you deserve because God does not work on our value system. He works on his value system. So if you have sinned, you are going to be in Sodom unless Jesus says, follow me, Don't look back. And you say, okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. I don't need anything. I don't want anything. I've got you, Jesus. Let me follow you out of this city. But unfortunately, we are very aware that American Christianity has a whole lot of stopping and turning back. But I really like this stuff. But I want to be accepted. I want those things. And we start to take on a value system that is not God's. The beauty of Jesus Christ and the mercy of him is that we're just like Lot, completely messed up, completely broken, and he still grabs our hand and says, Follow me. And a story like this, the judgment here, I love there's this quote from Amy Julia Becker. Uh, I love this idea of this idea of judgment. She has an article that says explaining judgment to a two-year-old. So for a two-year-old can get it, you can get it this morning. It says this. She, her little one came and asked about this word, judgment. She says this. This is her quote. I swallowed hard, and then I said, Judgment is when God says no to bad things. As I said it, I felt some of my discomfort with the area of judgment melt away. It should bring comfort to a child to know that God says no to everything that is wrong with the world. Judgment, I realized, can bring security and hope. Judgment is God saying no to bad things. Why are bad things still happening in the world? Because he is merciful. But this doesn't go on forever. He's giving us time and what we find in the book of Revelation, we're in the first book, we're going to go all the way to the end, is that God says enough is enough. And he eradicates sin once and for all. And in this time process, in the years in which you are given on this earth, in which you contribute to the problem of sin, knowingly and willingly, and we keep causing the problem to go forward, he offers you mercy and opportunity to call on him as Lord and Savior to be saved, even though you're part of the problem. And that is the mercy of God. The judgment of God, the wrath of God, was put on Jesus Christ on the cross, so you will not receive that. However, as a follower of Jesus Christ, or not as a follower, there is a time and place as a follower you'll come before Christ called the Bema seat, in which you are judged and you are given account for everything you've done with the life and the gifts and the talents God's given you. And so your life and what you do now matters big time. Some will be given more, some will get in by the skin of their teeth, But there will be a place in which you are accountable for which God has given you. Everything you have, your resources, your gifts, your talents, your time, we are accountable to to our king and our master to be a disciple maker. Then those who don't know Christ are put at the judgment seat because they are not covered by the blood of Christ. And the judgment seat is that everything that they have gone wrong, they have to pay for. And this big, huge, scary word comes up that we don't like to say. The word is hell. Absolute separation from God Almighty because you chose it. That is what happens in the end. Why is God not destroying us now or destroying you? It's because he's a merciful judge. He loves us so much, and he gives us warning signs through his scripture. God does not play with sin. We do. He does not. And on top of that, when it comes to his mercy, it is greater than we can imagine because we don't get what we deserve. We can learn from our brother lot today, a few things that gives us some peace He loves those who are messed up and make terrible choices. He gives mercy to those when we don't deserve it. But most of all, we can see that the Lord God Almighty, the holy, perfect, merciful judge, he is the one who sets the standards and the rules. And he calls us today to leave our life of sin. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering.